Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. We're in Matthew chapter 22. In verse 15, which we covered yesterday, we see that there's this trap that is set for Jesus by the disciples of the Pharisees and by the Herodians. And they ask if it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Jesus' response is phenomenal. Uh, whose image and inscription is this? Looking at the, 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 the denarius that was brought to him. Caesar's, they said to him. In verse 21, Jesus said to them, Give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Here's verse 23. That same day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came up to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first got married and died. Having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third and so on to all seven. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection then, whose wife will she be of the seven? for they had all married her. And you can just see them like, you know, rubbing their palms together like, oh goody, we've used leveret marriage as a trap and Jesus is not gonna be able to answer this one. They weaponized, they thought at least, their knowledge of scripture here quoting Deuteronomy 25, five. I've talked about, I've, I've talked about leveret marriage until I was blue in the face uh, in our series in Ruth. So I will not rehash all of this, but if you weren't with us, go back and watch some of that content in um, Love Story, the book of Ruth. That was, that was an incredible, incredible insight to the context of Jesus's lineage. Really, really amazing story. It began in short that just God prescribed that a man's piece of the promised land would not disappear if he died. If his widow was left behind could marry his next of kin and that man were eligible for marriage, then they would have children and name them after the one who died. This is an incredible, incredible way of looking after uh, widows in Old Testament Israel in a way of preserving the genealogical lines that were so important for the integrity of records and, the and proof of the fulfillment of the covenant that God had made through Abraham to Israel. Uh, but what they had tried to do is turn it into a riddle. Riddle me this, Jesus, whose husband, uh, who's going to be her husband when she gets to heaven? So tomorrow we'll look at Jesus' answer, but I want to look at the question itself. They quoted Deuteronomy 25.5, and they quoted it the way that the devil quotes Scripture. They quoted Scripture to Jesus. Where have you seen this before? Earlier on in the Gospel of Matthew, you see the, the temptation of Jesus, and it doesn't go well. <laughs> Right. It doesn't go well for the devil. The devil's been given a certain modicum of jurisdiction over the earth, and he offers this to Jesus in trying to tempt Jesus. He does so by quoting scripture, oftentimes from Psalm 91. And we saw this in our devotions as well, stopping short deliberately of a passage, of a verse in Psalm 91, wherein the head of the serpent is crushed. When the devil quoted scripture to Jesus, he would isolate it from its context. Here's what actually happens. When we go back and we look at Deuteronomy 25, they've quoted verse 5, and here's what comes next. Here's verse 6 of 
Deuteronomy 25 and, and, and moving forward. The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not want to marry his sister-in-law, she is to go to the elders at the city gate and say, my brother-in-law refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He isn't willing to perform the duty of a brother-in-law for me. The elders of his city will summon him and speak with him. If he persists and says, I don't want to marry her, then his sister-in-law will go up to him in the sight of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot and spit in his face. Then she will declare, this is what is done to a man who will not build up his brother's house and his family name in Israel will be the house of the man whose sandal was removed. And this comes up upon verses 11 and 12, which we've talked about extensively already. This passage that they quoted from was the context that would lead to the story of Ruth and Boaz. They were quoting the backstory to the Messiah to the Messiah. That's bold. Jesus is going to respond, actually, to their question with an additional teaching, and he gives it with his own divine authority. It never works when we try to weaponize Scripture against Jesus. It is literally satanic to quote Scripture out of context. I wanted to put out a piece when I worked at Lifeway that said exactly that, and then the copywriter there uh, about had a coronary. Uh, and, and it was because I thought it was just too harsh to say. But I'm saying it now. It is satanic to quote scripture out of context. To quote Deuteronomy 25.5 to Jesus, whose genealogical line was prophesied and preordained, predestined and foreknown by God before the foundations of the earth. To, to speak to the one who personifies the very intent of that passage and then try to use it against him. This is satanic. This is satanic. It's also satanic to disavow life after death, to disavow the resurrection. That same day, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and questioned him. Right there, verse 25, verse 23 rather, sets the tone for you. These guys, based on that belief, ought not have confronted Jesus at all. If you don't believe that anything happens after you die, why do anything? Ultimately, it's futility. That they denied the resurrection means that they frankly like didn't believe in the prophet Daniel, and they didn't believe the prophet Isaiah, which we're going to study next. Because the, and in both of these, we see apocalyptic prophecy. We see, uh, we see God in His throne room in Ezekiel and Isaiah. We know that there is life after death, and so these these guys believed quite selectively. When you don't think that anything happens after you die, there's no point in anything. There's no morality, there's no right, there's no wrong. Ultimately, if you all just end in nihilism, as in you're annihilated, why even debate? And so today, an atheistic community, an atheistic culture that would engage in moral debate is forsaking its true belief system. If nothing happens after you die, there's no right, there's no wrong, none of it matters. Why do you care? Especially, why do you even bother debating? Why do you go about trying to set literary traps for the Word, the Logos, Himself? So this is a long-standing tradition. We find ourselves in a context whereby the spirit of the Sadducees lives on today. This is not, this is not gone away since. So tomorrow we'll look at Jesus' response. Of course, it's perfect and it's brilliant. I'll see you tomorrow.